Welcome to Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers, where we talk with and about the foreign banking community in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us, and please be sure to subscribe so you never miss a beat with the IIB. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Bank Talk with the IIB. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing sanctions enforcement, in particular, the Magnitsky Act sanctions from three different perspectives, from a former prosecutor turned defense attorney, from another former federal prosecutor and former high-ranking enforcement official at the Department of Commerce and current in-house bank counsel, and from a sanctions enforcement professional and former treasury official. And giving us those perspectives, I'm thrilled to be joined today by Sid Kamaraju, a partner at Prior Cashman, Lisa Prager, General Counsel and Executive Vice President at the Agricultural Bank of China, and Josh Schrager, Senior Vice President of Keron. Thank you all for joining us today. Sid, why don't I uh, kick it over to you just to lay the groundwork for our, our conversation? Where are we going? What, what does all this mean? Sure, absolutely. And uh, thank you for having me, Megan. Um, as you mentioned, today we're going to spend a little time talking about the Magnitsky Act, um, which is a U.S. law that provides for sanctions in particular situations and which has been increasingly enforced around the world in situations that could have a significant impact on foreign financial institutions. And so before we we dive in too deeply, uh, I thought it might be helpful to just give a little bit of the background of the act and sort of the legal framework to give us some context for what we're talking about today. So, you know, as, as a basic matter, U.S. sanctions laws are rules and regulations that among other things are designed to sort of implement foreign policy through prohibitions on trade with the United States principally. Uh, And the Magnitsky Act is a species of that. The first version of the Magnitsky Act was enacted in 2012 and it was focused on Russian individuals, Russian officials, excuse me, were involved in the death of Sergei Magnitsky. And like many sanctions regimes, it sought to cut off those officials access to the US markets. In 2016, Congress expanded that in what's now known as the Global Magnitsky Act, which now focuses on any foreign person, which includes entities who commit human rights violations uh, against those people who are trying to expose illegal activity, uh, who are trying to exercise or defend human rights. Um, And it also targets foreign officials who are engaged in significant acts of corruption like bribery or, or misappropriation of state asset. And it's a pretty active field. For example, just last month, the U- U.S. designated three Paraguayan nationals for bribing state officials to protect their money laundering and smuggling operations. So it's a space that we see a lot of activity in. Um, as, as kind of just a framework, um, the sanctions pursuant to the Magnitsky Act work uh, under an executive order issued by President Trump in 2017, Executive Order 13818. And basically what, what that executive order does is it allows the Treasury Department to designate certain foreign persons who are engaged in that kind of conduct, whether it's human rights violations or corruption, to designate them or sanction them, in other words, as well as people who are providing material assistance to those individuals. And once a person is designated under the executive order, the effect of that is all of their property that's in the United States, any property that's passing through the United States or that's in control of a US person is effectively what we call blocked or locked up. It can no longer be accessed. There are also travel restrictions that go along with that. And and the executive order is pretty broad. It reaches 
um, not only the individuals who are engaged directly in the action, but also for anyone who attempts to violate the sanctions or who conspires or agrees to try to violate the sanctions. So after the executive order, what happened is the Treasury Department then implemented its own set of regulations. And at a real basic level, what those regulations do is um, incorporate the executive order and create penalties for violations of that order. So any transactions that uh, would violate that order constitute violations of the regulations, which then allow for US regulators and law enforcement agencies to seek punishments. In particular, you can see civil penalties through, for example, the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, um, which is also known as OFAC, or also uh, the Department of Justice can bring criminal prosecutions, which can obviously have significant consequences as well. So that sets the stage a little bit for, I think, what we're, what we're talking about today. Um, and I think it might make sense, uh, Josh, for you to talk a little bit about um, how somebody ends up on that list. Thanks, Sid, and, and, and great to be here. Look, Sid nailed it on, on the high level. Um, and let me try to tell you a little bit about how the sausage is made, if you will. Um, and Sid also said, and I, I think it's important to, to re-acknowledge that uh, at the end of the day, sanctions are a tool of foreign policy. And typically in the US context, uh, the decision of targeting and timing uh, is an interagency process that will usually be run out of the White House. Uh, of course, there are different agencies that play uh, into the process, uh, Sid mentioned OFAC and Treasury, of course, State Department, Department of Justice, and others also have, have a, a role in the sanctions process. Uh, at its core, I would say the implementation of targeted sanctions Again, as Sid said, to typically hinge on you know the executive orders um, that we see. Um, so you know, what's the actual process look like? What's the actual designation process? So there's a couple of components that I'd want to break it down into. Uh, one which I will touch on, and then I'm going to probably circle back and give it a little bit more time is targeting. So ultimately, it's the selection of an entity or a person uh, to impose sanctions against. Um, and again, uh, as we think about targeting as the Treasury or State Department or White House or others in the US government think about who they are going to sanction, it will come back to the question, it should come back to the question of what's the foreign policy objective that uh, is, is being advanced by imposing said sanctions. Uh, then there is the building of the evidentiary package. Uh, an evidentiary package is an internal US government document uh, typically, it's going to come out of the Treasury Department that builds ultimately the, the legal and administrative case for the imposition of sanctions against the particular target. And again, this ties back, um, you know, what's the justification of why can someone be sanctioned according to uh, a particular executive order? We've talked about executive order. Um, of course, and this is a huge one that I think is worth emphasis, is the policy considerations, considerations and equities checks that are involved as a part of the sanctions process. Uh, for example, Treasury Department and State Department may be in favor of imposing sanctions on a particular target. Um, that being said, maybe uh, it goes to the White House, uh, the interagency, kind of you know, other agencies and departments in the US government have an opportunity to chime in. 
And maybe an intelligence organization has a contradictory view. Maybe they say, don't impose sanctions on that person. It's going to mess something up for us, or we don't think it should be done for X, Y, and Z reasons. At this point in time, senior representatives of the various stakeholders will typically convene in the White House, and a decision is going to be made. Of course, once that decision has been made, that's when, if it's an OFAC in, uh, sanctions enforcement action, OFAC will uh, you know, formally designate or list someone, a press release will come out, um, there will be a name and alias is added to the sanctions list, something that probably a lot of the listeners are, are familiar with. Um, let me do one more moment on targeting. Um, I, I think with targeting, it's really important. So again, the selection of who is gonna be sanctioned, it's important to realize that this process of selecting who or what should be sanctioned is always ongoing. Um, I would say it's 24 seven, 365, someone in the US government is in uh, one phase or another in the sanctions targeting process. Um, targeting can be a top-down approach. The president or a cabinet member can say, we have this foreign policy objective, who or what can we sanction to move the needle? Um, or sometimes, and I saw it when I was at the Treasury Department, it can be bottom up. An officer at the Treasury Department, at the State Department, elsewhere, uh, could recommend through an, a well-established bureaucratic practice that a certain actor or network associated with an actor is sanctioned. Um, of course, there are lots of considerations. Uh, what is the network around a sanctioned actor? Who should be sanctioned today versus who should be sanctioned tomorrow or next month or next year? Um, and of course, what will the impact be? Um, you know, does it actually um, you know, move the foreign policy needle? Does it create an issue for an ally? Does it create an issue for an intelligence or a law enforcement operation? So at the end of the day, um, I'll say that the government's interest, this is where I started, it's where I'm gonna go back. The interest, and as we think about, you know, what does a compliance officer start to think about? The government's interest is policy impact. I don't think the government or anyone in the government is sitting down and calculating, well, what does this uh, enforcement action or sanction action, how's it gonna impact the compliance operations at this bank or that bank? Um, it is not generally a consideration. I think the considerations really are the policy impact. And I think as we all know, uh, this means that a designation can come, you know, really at any time. Thanks for that, Josh. Well, you created a perfect segue for me here by, by referencing the compliance officers and the government's uh, lack of consideration for them. But, you know, we here at Bank Talk like to have uh, what we hope are helpful episodes for, for our, our bank members. So, Sid or, or Josh or Lisa, what are the challenges for foreign banks posed by, by these sanctions? And, um, you know, I think there, there, there's been an increased focus on foreign corruption and human rights violation. We've seen a lot of these things kind of coming through. What, what are we looking at both there and then from a bank perspective? Well, um, I'll, I'll just touch real quick on uh, some of the implications that come from you know some of the some of the stuff Josh was talking about, which is the, the policy impact and the desire to go after the networks um, of designated individuals, uh, which I think creates a lot of complications. Um, you know, regulators and law enforcement agencies, uh, a common strategy and one that's been used in sanctions enforcement for years, is to target networks, including foreign financial institutions, 
that enable sanctions evasion, even sometimes unwittingly. Um, and I think there are three aspects of this push that are particularly important um, for foreign financial institutions looking at this issue. Um, one is correspondent banking relationships. Um, you know, since since September 11th, the U.S. has really increased its scrutiny of correspondent banking. Um, it's worked close, you know, the U.S. government has worked closely with domestic banks to increase transparency. Congress has given prosecutors uh, significant more leeway and authority in seeking records related to correspondent banks. Um, and there are uh, a trove of DOJ prosecutors, including some at uh, Lisa's old office and some at my old office, uh, who invested a lot of time and effort in learning how to conduct these kinds of investigations and that have resulted in significant prosecutions of, um, of executives and foreign financial institutions. And, you know, I think that's a point also that sometimes gets lost is while the, the nub of the conduct often is financial transactions passing through the United States, the U.S. government has certainly not confined itself to that and has reached uh, you know, across its borders to apply its sanctions and the penalties in those sanctions to individuals who are acting entirely abroad. Um, and we can talk a little bit about some examples of that. And I think the other tricky thing too is, is obviously criminal prosecutions are terrible, but they're not the only concern. And for banks, you have to be very concerned also about the actions that bank regulators, bank regulators are learning from and working with DOJ. So whether it's FinCEN or Federal Reserve or Commerce, Lisa's old shop, or state regulators, they're really beginning to enforce these through many different mechanisms. You know, for example, in 2019, um, the New York Department of Financial Services and the Federal Reserve were part of a $1.3 billion settlement with Unicredit. $405 million of that fine came, uh, came from the DFS action. And um, Lisa, I know you have some more stories related to some of these uh, enforcement type actions. Yes, so definitely war stories and success stories um, as it relates to dealing with DFS uh, and the Fed and their enforcement actions. But let me say at the outset that what Sid and Joshua are talking about is essentially financial institutions. On any given day, we are the allies of the government in, in managing these um these lists and these designations, and on other cases, we could be in other situations, we could be the target. And I know that many of my fellow uh, bank members of IIB feel feel much the same way. So, so we we are the, the compliance burdens and um, and trying to stay on top of the trends here are absolutely front and center, and certainly. I read, for example, you, you met, mentioned, Megan, the idea about human rights and foreign corruption. There was a recent case before the end, uh, at the beginning of the summer involving some Bulgarian citizens who were would ordinarily be pursued under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and DOJ. Uh, and then and they're designated now under the Magnitsky Act uh, for corruption activities, I think signaling that the Biden administration is all is going to use every tool in its toolkit to deal with corruption, human rights violations, money laundering, bank secrecy act. And what makes me as the general counsel of, uh, 
of, of our bank, of the Chinese bank, want to want to really be vigilant about this is that in addition to sort of these cases and his announcements um, and the NDAA that was passed earlier this year is he has the people in his administration who those of us who have been there before, all three of us have been in the government before, they know what they're doing and they understand the sophistication of these kinds of, of, of financial institutions, of correspondent banking, of global banking. And so they're going to expect us, global financial institutions, to be, you know, on to be spot on with the kinds of things that we're doing. So for example, we are we are very invested in um, in technology solutions for, for to make sure that we have the latest information on screening. And there are technology solutions. I'll let Joshua um, talk a fair amount about the Karen solution, but um, or or not if you if if he if he doesn't feel like it. But we have we have Karen, we have all kinds, and we have other technology solutions that we use, and we use them in our first line as well as in the second line um, at compliance, so that we are constantly checking and double checking and staying on top of um, the people that are involved, the entities that are involved in our transactions. And I think other banks are looking at other types of solutions. Some are using artificial intelligence solutions, but technology plays certainly a very big part in the way in which we are dealing with some of these compliance obligations. At the same time, let me just say that we can be whipsawed by foreign anti-sanctions laws, and it will come as no shock to, um, to many of the members of the IIB who have branches or whose head office is in China, that the Chinese anti-sanction law is a very is a significant uh, development that we're watching also very very carefully. Not to say that we have not had blocking statutes, if you will, in the past. The European many of the European regimes use blocking statutes to deal with the U.S. embargo against Cuba, but this is quite far-reaching, and it also demonstrates some understanding of this issue. And Sid, I'm going to let you talk about it because I think many foreign banks and certainly head offices um, do not understand the extraterritorial reach of some of the kinds of like Magnitsky, some of the export control, the FCPA, some of the kinds of things that can get banks outside and entities and institutions outside the geographical boundaries of the United States into trouble. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. Josh, do you want to take it from there and kind of walk us through some of these compliance difficulties that the banks are facing? Sure. We'll, we'll, we'll do our best. How about that? <laughs> um, we have, what, five and a half hours to talk, don't we, everybody? No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's look, I, I think um, sanctions compliance at one point in time was, I'll, I'll dare say, rather straightforward. Um, I'll certainly say more straightforward. Um, and, you know, I think that we saw, you know, in legacy in the past, um, does a name appear on a list? Uh, does a name appear on the OFAC list? Is your institution providing services to said name on the list? Uh, if yes, then cut it out. And if no, then, well, carry on. Um, and, uh, you know, Lisa said it, um, you know, 
it's the, the environment in which you know we all operate and you know looking at the increased complexities it's a lot um and you know we strongly believe and this is not just Josh from Caron, I think this is what we'll hear across industry. Um, we'll hear it from compliance officers. We'll hear it from the Lisa Pragers of the world and, and, and anybody else that, you know, what's, what's the best way to approach this? What's the only way to really increasingly approach this complex issue? It's with data and technology. And, um, you know, I think that the core principle of that, I would say, and, you know, certainly what we believe in, is if we think about data, it's not just having more data. Um, you know, we all, everyone who works at a, at a bank or in compliance knows the pain points, the false positives and everything else, which will always be a reality. Um, but more data isn't the answer. It's certainly it's better data. It's more thoughtful data. It's more structured data. So it's starting to understand not just who is sanctioned, but what are the vast connections in networks uh, all of which represent risk that surround a sanctioned actor. Um, so before I said in the old the olden days, if you will, when um, you know sanctions compliance was more straightforward. Um, now, you know, instead of just checking a list, we have sectoral sanctions. We have export controls, like uh, you know the military end use and end user role, and of course we have the fifty percent role. Um, and you know, I think we'll take a moment to talk about the 50% rule. Um, you know, the 50% rule at its core blocks the property and the interest of entities who are that are owned 50% or more by parties sanctioned by the Treasury Department, uh, even if they're not sanctioned by name. So the European Union has a similar rule. Um, and the OFAC 50% rules, I think it's been in the books, you know, for, gosh, you know, 13 years now, I think going back to you know, 2008 or so, there have been some revisions and some updates, but it's on the books. There are enforcement actions that come out. It is uh, something that regulators care about. Um, and I think to get a little bit deeper into the 50% rule, um, you know, I, I would, you know, say if we have company X and they are sanctioned and you go to the OFAC list and of course you see that company X is listed, um, however, what will not appear on the OFAC list is company Y. Um, and the reality is company X, which is sanctioned by name. We said it's on the OFAC list. It owns 50% or 53% of company Y. So thereby what the 50% rule is saying is that even though company Y does not appear by name on the sanctions list, it should be considered and treated as sanctioned. So this becomes pretty darn complicated at times. And this could be straightforward, right? I talk about company X, company Y, 53%. However, we start to look at complex ownership chains that have two or three or five or 10, you know, subsidiaries who own another subsidiary, who own another subsidiary. We have aggregate ownership that we have to consider where uh, uh, one sanctioned company owns 20% of another company, another sanctioned company owns 30% of that same company, thereby 50% of that company is owned by sanctioned companies. Again, it is sanctioned by law. Um, and uh, what the reality is, is there are thousands and thousands and thousands of companies that are sanctioned by law under the 50% rule, but do not appear on an official US government list. So 
again, why do I get into these details? Why do we talk about this? You know, some of you know about the 50% rule, some of you've heard about it, but you know, why do we talk about it? It, it is to reinforce the reality that to now be in compliance with sanctions is no longer just checking that list, just checking that box. Um, and what we see is beyond just ownership risk, uh, of course, there are other relationships that can create compliance risk. Um, that could be vendor relationships, affiliations, partnerships. Uh, I think increasingly uh, supply chains is something that we're all cognizant of. And, um, you know, look, we all know, and you know, live and die by KYC, knowing our customer. Um, now with, you know, increased vendor relationships and complex supply chains, it's not just knowing your customer that's enough, but it's knowing your customer's customers. Um, so I'd also say, you know, to state the obvious, we know we live in a dynamic world. Uh, relationships change every week. They change every day. Sometimes they change every moment. Uh, who I worked with today may be different than who I work with tomorrow. Who is an advisor to my company today may be different than who, than who advises us tomorrow. Um, but what we are hearing and what we see from regulators, from enforcement agencies, is that it is becoming increasingly important to understand the expansive relationships and networks that surround sanctioned actors. Said, and no longer just checking that list and thinking our work is done. Um, there's now the expectation that institutions will identify risk at a moment's notice. And I can say, you know, as we look at it at Caron and what we do as data providers and you know, what we hear about, you know, in kind of the, the you know, compliance world of, you know, who's out there technology and, and, and data wise, you know, what we do, of course, is we look at these vast networks and understand that we have to be aware, uh, banks, financial institutions, corporates, governments, they need to be aware of these broader networks. And certainly, I think this phenomenon is not one that's going to go away. Um, you know, I think as we see the proliferation of you know, identified actors who have, uh, you know, that may be caught up in the 50% rule, as we think about uh, prohibited parties that may be uh, impacted by the, you know, U.S. Commerce Department export regulations, um, you know, through joint ownership to vendor relationships. Um, certainly what we're going to see is that the onus is on compliance departments to rely on data, to rely on technology, to fill out the world of risk that impacts them and you know to take that step back and, and look at the whole universe and not just who's appearing on that list. And, and Josh, if I could, Megan and Sid, I think it's, a, it's important to understand that sanctions, it, it's not just a, it's not a, just a defensive kind of, uh, you know, you want to check the list and understand. There are, I think, first of all, U.S. law enforcement in the last 10 years has learned a lot. I would say back in the day when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was a federal prosecutor, uh, we picked cases off here or there. There is much more collaboration, not only in the United States, but globally now with other law enforcement entities. And so it's important to think about sanctions in a more expansive way because we know financial institutions, whether you're huge or small, but if you operate globally, we are like battleships. It's very slow to turn. And so to the extent you understand sanctions is more than just who's on the list, but as Josh was talking about networks and relationships, you can see trends, 
you can prepare the business, and frankly, you can also educate the business to use the understanding of sanctions competitively. Both, it could be a reason that uh, that you can do a transaction or you can let a transaction go through because you have the proper understanding, you have the proper technology and professionals to analyze it, or you can um, you can understand more in a more targeted fashion whether a transaction complies with your risk appetite because you understand this more than just oh does the name match the list and if it is is it is it the same address it used to be a very primitive uh, a primitive exploration and now I think it is a much more broadly under needs to be a more broadly understood <clears throat> so it can be not only a defensive a defense mechanism for if enforcement authorities ask the bank, but so that financial institutions can go forward affirmatively and say, we have a comprehensive program. We understand this. We think about things this way. We use networks. We use the 50% rule. We watch the U.S. court resolutions of, of military end use designations, you know, and on and on things of that nature. And I think when it gets away from that, there's even better buy-in. When it gets more like that and away from the list, you get better buy-in from the financial institution writ large. My, just my two cents from, from inside the bank. Much more than two cents, Lisa. That was that was very helpful. Thank you. Thank you both. So we've talked a lot about compliance and what that looks like and, and the difficulties that come from that. But you know, let's flip it. What happens when banks don't comply? What what are the risks of non-compliance? What happens there? Yeah, well, I think there's, you know, I'd like to pick up a little bit also on what, what Lisa said, because I think it plays into it. You know, the, the U.S. government, and particularly law enforcement, um, is increasingly aggressive, um, not only with its investigations here at home, but as Lisa said, uh, abroad as well, you know, through cooperation with foreign law enforcement partners or intelligence agencies or um, through their own investigative means, they are digging into conduct abroad much more significantly that's happened in the past. And you are seeing that kind of evidence turn up in US prosecutions. And so I think what might surprise some people, and this is, this is something Lisa alluded to before, is you know, action, the US government's view is just because you are located in some foreign country, when you engage in an action that would otherwise violate US sanctions, that does not insulate you from liability. And in fact, just in June of this year, the Biden administration put out a pretty strongly worded statement talking about corruption, including corruption abroad as a core national security interest of the United States. So I think we can expect that people, um, wherever they're located, need to get a handle on what their conduct is and how it plays with sort of an evolving sanctions regime. And that plays right into what the, what the risks of non-compliance are. Because, you know, first, just to take a step back, the, the different potential penalties that can arise from non-compliance are significant. You know, you can have regulatory actions through principally OFAC, but as we talked about before, also uh, bank regulators and state financial regulators. And, and those actions upon finding a violation could, for example, lead to uh, an organization or a financial institution losing its access to the U.S. banking system. Um, it can lead to very significant fines and penalties. You know, uh, 
obviously in 2020, COVID impacted a lot of enforcement action across the United States government. But in 2019, OFAC issued, you know, more than $1.3 billion in, in fines and penalties. So those themselves can be significant. And then there's the, the reputational harm that obviously comes from finding yourself on that list or finding yourself tied to somebody from that list. Um, and it's important to remember that because OFAC and the Department of Justice and, and other law enforcement agencies are reaching into other countries to try to see what what that uh, how how companies are are abiding by sanctions. The types of evidence and the scope of conduct often gets much much broader than you know a set of individual transactions or a, or a, you know even a, even a particularly problematic customer. And they're really digging into the broader network. And there does come a point where, uh, whether it's through OFAC or whether through, through simply the actions of US law enforcement, criminal authorities can also get involved and are actively now pursuing both executives at foreign financial institutions and the financial institutions themselves. Uh, you know, Just within the last few years, for example, um, Hakan Attila, who is a uh, senior bank executive at Hulk Bank, was prosecuted and convicted. Hulk Bank itself finds itself under indictment. There's obviously Meng Wanzhou and Huawei. Um, so there are significant criminal potential penalties that come alongside um, all of the sort of regulatory issues that can come up from non-compliance with U.S. sanctions. And on top of that, um, it is a it is not an often used remedy, but it can be a particularly devastating one are the government's forfeiture capabilities, which for which can lead it to, um, through either civil or criminal means, filing forfeiture actions where it can seize property involved in sanctions evasion. Um, there have just recently been several instances in which the US government through the US Attorney's Office has seized cargo vessels. Um, they can seize correspondent banking accounts. They can seize any property that's related to or is used in furtherance of the sanctions evasion activity. And so what you are what you are getting is not only a broader reach from the US government in terms of the conduct that it's looking at, but also a more substantial reach with respect to the remedies it's pursuing against people. And so I think when you talk about the risks of noncompliance, um, they are both deeper and broader in that there's more things that can get you in trouble and there's more ways that once you are in trouble, you can get penalized. And so I think that's that's something that, that banks really need to be thinking about proactively, as Lisa was commenting on, is how do I get ahead of this rather than how do I be defensive? And Sid, I would just say, on to your point about broader uh, my fellow colleagues who will listen to this in the banking community community also have to deal with the Federal Reserve. And if you're in New York, you have a New York license, you deal with the Department of Financial Services, uh, it's public record, uh, you can, and they can bring about uh, cease and desist and consent orders that have multi hundreds of million dollar penalties or impose um, certainly my view when I was in private practice and my view having uh, just survived one, a monitorship on your financial institution. And this has been a favorite flavor of the month yeah. for uh, the bank regulators. 
um, following DOJ's example of using them in the, in the, in the corruption cases. And it's not just that you have to, you pay the penalty and you pay the monitor, but can you imagine the opportunity cost and how debilitating it is for an institution's employees to have somebody basically, you know, rooting around in the drawers of your desk, in the files of your cabinet, and you questioning your employees routinely about transactions that happened years prior. It's very debilitating for an institution. It's extremely expensive for an institution. And the bank regulators, the, my experiences are with the Fed and with the New York State regulators, pay very, very careful attention, require additional reporting. And uh, I would not, I would say that while I think there might be a trend for DFS uh, to move away somewhat from monitors, and, and I know that the Attorney General Merrick Garland had said some things about DOJ also moving away from monitors. You know, we used to joke, Sid, I'm, and Joshua, I'm sure you've heard this, is like, nice work if you can get it, right? These monitors that just stay and work and work and work forever, charging these institutions outrageous amounts of money. So maybe it will become less, um, less available in other industry sectors. But for the, federal, for the bank regulators who themselves conduct routine examinations and all of that, they seem to really rely uh, on the commitment of these monitors to look at banks who have had trouble with the compliance in the past. And the last thing I would just say, Megan, and I'm sure that other of my colleagues at these other banks know this is, again, 10 years ago, DOJ would not lift up the phone, and at least not when I was there, lift up the phone and call the Fed and say, by the way, we're going to issue a grand jury subpoena for X, Y, and Z matters to X, Y, and Z banks. You might find out about it because one of your friends at another bank would call you, but now they're, they do pick up the phone. I feel like they're very in very close collaboration, roping in OFAC and any commerce and any other enforcement agency that they think they have to. But again, born of perhaps the past 10 years of major criminal investigations, you know, lengthy two, three, five-year grand jury investigations where they have all educated themselves as to how global banking works and now understand, you know, where the holes are to poke at. Yeah. What I've learned so far in this podcast is I'm very glad that there are professionals like all of you doing this and it is not left to me. So, um, as I said, kind of at the onset, you know, we, we like these to be as uh, helpful and practical as possible. And we've talked uh, all about what, what this means, what these sanctions are, uh, the compliance risks and difficulties, what happens if we're not in compliance. But what are some real solutions here? You know, what can IIB member banks do on the front end uh, to, to kind of prepare for, for any sanctions to come down? And then what, what can a bank do if they do discover a sanctions violation? I'm happy to, to jump off there. So I, I think, uh, look, I'll always agree with what Lisa Prager says and not because I have to, but you know, it's just kind of what I've learned and, and every time I hear her speak, but I think Lisa said it best that, you know, fundamentally a, finan a financial institution can no longer 
rely on, on purely being defensive. Uh, increasingly, I can say every day when I'm working with clients um, in the US, around the world, that yes, people are still using, of course, data and technology to run investigations after a hit has come up in their system. That will never go away. That being said, more and more every single day, I see that institutions and corporations uh, and banks are using data and technology to build better and more efficient transaction and customer screening processes. So, you know, I think we said it before, but what's important is to be proactive. Uh, let's look at the trends. So, you know, if I said, what is a bank to do? Um, you know, first I'd say there's probably, um, you know, the starting point of course is the acknowledgement that there is increasing risk and that regulatory expectations, we've said it, more than once in the past uh, 45 minutes here or whatever, but um, that the regulatory expectations are now to examine beyond just what is on the list. And I think that that's like, you know, the first core, you know, step one, let's, let's all come together and, and say that aloud, you know, three times together and, you know, ha have that understanding. Um, two, I think, um, you know, what, what we've seen from guidance from regulators over the past couple of years, um, again, is, you know, focusing on being proactive. Um, so, you know, we've seen guidance that have, that's come out on maritime risk, on Iran, on North Korea, on crypto more and more. And, and look, there's a lot to dive into on, you know, each and every, you know, parts of the, the guidance that, that have been offered by various government bodies. Um, the theme that I would say that, you know, transcends those is this reality of, no longer just being reactive. We see in all of those contexts in the broad world of sanctions and anti-money laundering and beyond, that now there is this need to push ahead. And I think that is, again, what we're hearing, not just what we think is right or institutions think right or what Sid and Lisa think is right. And I think we all do, but certainly the guidance and kind of the direction that we're getting from, from the regulators and getting from the governments. And then third, you know, I would also say that we have to understand that banks need to understand where exposure exists. Um, you know, I think broadly the line between sanctions management and, and broad KYC um, are, you know, increasingly that line is, you know, they're coming together. Um, so, you know, for example, um, you know, look, we see that the US, and of course this is along with the UK, the EU and others in their international community would, seen a lot of action this summer, we've seen it in the past year, that, um, you know, so we're continuing to see sanctions that are targeting Belarus. Um, and broadly, um, you know, I would say, at least from my perspective, I don't think a lot of industries and companies who, you know, were not, you know, immediately adjacent to Belarus were too much concerned about the vast exposure that they may have to Belarus. Um, what we've seen, however, um, you know, with the imposition of sectoral sanctions and, and beyond and state-owned enterprises is indeed that there are major industry verticals in Belarus, and that's potash and oil and gas and tobacco, um, that are global in nature. So I bring this up again as an example of Belarus. I know it's the same thing when the Myanmar Burma sanctions were starting up again, that you know, I don't know, I think a lot of, you know, global banks and companies didn't necessarily realize that they had exposure to Myanmar. Um, and what we see, again, this interconnected world where, you know, what's happening in seemingly a 
far out corner of the world is not is no longer not our concern. And I think that's imperative as we think about you know how we build these systems, how banks build these systems. Um, so look, uh, you know, if, I, if I'm to look at it, you know, holistically, um, you know, institutions need to frankly accept the increased existence of risk, the uh, evolving evolution of what this risk looks like. And, you know, I think that what's most important is uh, there's only so many human beings that you can throw at a problem. Uh, you can have the best analysts in the world. And, and we have a great analyst at Caron, and there's lots of banks that have amazing analysts. And, uh, they should and continue to do important work all the time, but there's not enough people that you can throw at the problem. Um, you leverage those smart human beings, but in concert with the you know data and technology that's that is continuing to evolve, and you know, and I think that's really the front end of how we want to start tackling these problems more and more. So, Megan, um, so one, I I echo what Josh don't. You need to be proactive if you are the the New York branch or the U.S. branch of a foreign bank. And the reason for that is because your foreign institutions are going to ask you, your head offices are going to ask you to read the tea leaves. And to the extent that you can do that with credibility, just because you're sitting in the United States, again, the fact that our all of our head offices and many of our foreign branches do business in U.S. dollars which means globally, the institution writ large needs to pay attention to sanctions. And you start to create um, sort of this center of regulatory enforcement excellence, legal excellence, if you in this area for your institution. And, and I think that's very important. On your second point, look, if you find you're, you're, you're sitting at your branch and you find a, a transaction that you believe to be a violation of the US sanctions laws, you can make a voluntary self-disclosure to OFAC, and it is a subject of great discussion among uh, practitioners like Sid and others who have great experience in dealing with this. But most of the time, if you're a bank who's regularly examined and runs uh, you know, a, a, a risk-based compliance program with technology and people and monitoring and testing and training and all of the various pillars of the compliance program, it's probably going to be the situation where it got through, but you're not sure why. Maybe the spelling was a little bit wrong, so you didn't catch it on your sanctioned screening, or the address was off, or there was, you know, there was some problem. The nine cases out of 10 are these kinds of transactions that global banks are involved in. And so what is you you have to evaluate what is the percentage what do you have to lose or what do you have to gain by reporting that to ofac i think it depends on your relationship with the enforcement authorities if you're a global bank and they know you and you know them it's not that hard to get on the phone and say look we got this transaction or file a letter but the, the last point i would make on this is sanctions laws are incredibly complicated and the most important thing I think a general counsel can bring, if they're not themselves, uh, you know, a sanctions practitioner, is to make sure you hire really strong external counsel that knows sanctions. There are great white collar criminal lawyers out there, but you need someone that really knows sanctions because 
these regulations are extremely technical and you want someone that can go toe to toe with OFAC or commerce or justice, whoever you end up having to deal with, who has a really, really thorough understanding of the regulation. Yeah, just to, to pick up on that, I, I obviously echo everything Lisa and Josh said, but I think one of the other, one of the things that you need if you are dealing with OFAC, whether it's in the midst of a problem or after you've discovered one, is you need credibility. And obviously, as Lisa mentioned, if you are a, a global institution that's a, a regular player, you may have built that up yourself. Um, but it is, it is always helpful to be able to lean on the credibility of external counsel who, for example, may be able to walk you through common money laundering techniques that are emerging, uh, emerging more recently that are being used to vote deed filters. And to be able to say to OFAC, for example, uh, we have brought in folks who have this expertise and who are we are pairing with our, you know, Lisa called it the, the Center for Legal Excellence, is a, is a great term. You're, you're supplementing that with people who are specializing in this area and who are able to then uh, communicate with OFAC, not only sort of at OFAC's level, but also to be able to translate from the bank's perspective, you know, why some of these things happen and what the bank is doing to um, to improve it. And, you know, it is, a, it is an incredibly difficult decision whether to uh, voluntarily self-report. OFAC obviously tries to incentivize that as much as it can, um, but it is a, it's a, it's a difficult and nuanced decision, and it is very difficult to make it without the experience of both great general counsels and in-house in, in folks like Lisa and, you know, but also to have people who are sort of able to observe it from the outside and who have experience doing these kinds of things. So I think that's the, the one takeaway from all of this that I would want to just make sure is, is you need credibility, and credibility is is developed both through sort of the, the openness to an investigation, but also who and how you conduct it. Thanks, Sid. And I wanna thank you all for lending some credibility to our Bank Talk podcast uh, with this conversation today. I think on that note, that's a great great note to close it, but I wanna give, give all of you the opportunity to share any closing thoughts or words with us before we go. Well, Megan, I would just thank you for the time. Um, and I think this is obviously an incredibly important issue for folks to be thinking about. And I think, you know, the term that's come out over and over again is proactive. Um, and so I think uh, folks, folks should take that to heed and, and hopefully steer clear. Megan, thank you. Um, and I, I just want to say thank you to the IIB. Obviously, we are a member institution and uh, we greatly value these podcasts and all of the you know, opportunities to become better at our jobs that you and your organization offer. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for all the work that the broader work that you guys do. Thank you, Lisa. I'll just say amen. Um, there's a, I'm sure we could go on for hours, but uh, hopefully this is a great start to what we all know to be an increasingly important conversation. So thanks to IIB for facilitating such a, a, a great chat. Absolutely. Well, Sid, Lisa, Josh, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it sounds like we may have to have a follow-up since we could, in fact, go on and talk for hours on this. So thank you again, and hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon on Bank Talk. 
Thank you again for joining us for Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers. We hope you enjoyed, and we hope to see you again soon for the next episode.